Welcome to Politics Plus Media 101, the podcast co-founded and co-hosted by John Gunnison and myself, Justin Higgins. As a reminder, we publish episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, and we take a nonpartisan, deep dive look into U.S. policy and politics, along with the most pressing foreign policy issues facing our world today. We regularly host these shows with members of Congress, members of the media, along with members of U.S. and international think tanks. If you enjoy what you are listening to, please consider subscribing to our show on whatever platform you use, along with telling your friends and family about us. John Gunnison and I, Justin Higgins, have a great guest from the think tank CSIS on today, Gerard DePippo. We are going to take a look back at sanctions that were implemented a while back now on Russia for the reinvasion or second invasion or expansion of invasion of Ukraine. And we're going to see if they were effective, what impacts the war and sanctions have had on the global economy, and what takeaways we can learn moving forward when we deal with other situations where policymakers might want to just grab their bag of sanctions without thinking. Gerard, I wanted to look back at something that I really am curious about. We had the reinvasion of Ukraine and then transporting you back to February 26th, the day of the announcement. We had somewhat of a surprise announcement where aspects of Russian banks were going to be kicked off of SWIFT. And it was made by US, Germany, all of our Western partners. And it shocked people. And this went in conjunction with pretty severe technology sanctions and a whole host of other things that we did. And almost immediately transporting us back to that day, we saw a historic drop in the ruble. It just fell off of a cliff. And not being an econ guy myself, I was like, wow this is effective. We're crushing their currency. It's been decimated. It's probably going to stay this way. They don't have any way to stabilize it. But now as we look at the ruble, it's somewhat rebounded pretty well. Can you help me understand what's going on there and why the ultimate fall off the cliff during the announcement of sanctions was short-lived? Sure. You mentioned the sanctions on Russian banks. So what basically happened was before the invasion or re-invasion, President Biden had said that we were probably not going to be kicking Russian banks off the SWIFT network in the first tranche of sanctions. He also said nothing about the sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia, the CBR. I think it was, might have been a Saturday. I remember flipping through Twitter and seeing the announcement that they were effectively freezing all overseas assets of the Russian Central Bank, including Euro assets, British pounds, eventually Swiss francs, Korean won, everything. And I was stunned because that is that is a draconian measure that there's no direct precedent for, at least in terms of speed and level of coordination. And what it effectively did was cut off the Russian Central Bank's ability to access more than half of their reserves. They had constructed what had been called Fortress Russia, which was basically building up their stock of foreign exchange and to some extent gold having uh, low debt levels, and basically preparing their balance sheet for the potential of, of more sanctions after the 2014 batch of sanctions in response to the first invasion of Crimea. That immediately tanked the ruble because basically those reserves, would, which included most of their dollar assets, would have been what the central bank would use to prop up their exchange rate if they wanted to intervene, but they could no longer access them. So the ruble tanked, it fell I think more than 50% uh, from its pre-war level at its worst uh, moment a few weeks into the war. And then within about two weeks, or sorry, two months, by around April, the exchange rate had 
recovered to its pre-war level against the dollar. In fact, now it's stronger than it was before the war. How they did this was a combination of capital control. So the central bank is pretty deftly managed in Russia, and they basically prevented money from leaving and put in rules, for example, where exporters had to convert their earnings into rubles from dollars or euros so that helped prop up the exchange rate. But the other really big thing is that Russia continued and continues to export commodities, especially energy. And if you take those commodity hard earnings, right, and then you combine it with reduced imports, which they are also having, they have a massive current account or essentially a trade surplus, which ends up pushing up the exchange rate. So that's why it's stronger than it was before the war now. Gerard, I've got a question for you here. It stood out to me that you said that the Russian central bank is definitely managed because we've seen a pattern in a lot of autocratic regimes where a leader who becomes so insulated, especially after a long period of time in power, often surrounds himself with yes men. People who don't give him the best advice, people who are more interested in pleasing him than they are in steering the country in the right direction strategically. An example of this might be how Erdogan of Turkey put his son-in-law, Berat al-Bayrak, in charge of the finance ministry. I had assumed that Russia was a little bit similar, that most of the people around Putin were kind of at parachicks or palace creatures. Do you think that Russia actually have a higher caliber of economic strategy here than we might have assumed looking at those other patterns? I think Putin, for whatever reason, I guess his own strategy made a choice to be fairly deferential to technocrats, especially at the finance ministry and at the central bank. I mean, you're right that there's a lot of other aspects of the regime that are kleptocratic. But after the 2014 sanctions, they really hardened. They, they Once oil prices had recovered, they could have spent a lot more money than they did, but they actually saved it. They were quite conservative with how they managed their budgets and, and their debt levels. I think it's because Putin was preparing for the eventuality of, of what ended up happening, which was his, his territorial play on, on Ukraine. And they also did things like diversifying away from dollar assets. That was clearly to insulate them from from potential U.S. sanctions. They hadn't banked on the euro and other, uh, other currencies being included in that. So uh, yeah, I mean, Putin, one of his strengths has been to make sensible macroeconomic policies. His microeconomic policies, so the way that they reform state-owned enterprises, how you, know, you handle oligarchs, that kind of stuff, business climate, that has pretty much failed. I mean, forget where they are now, but, but even before the war, clearly reform was not going in the direction it needed to be. But instead, Putin was was focusing on macroeconomic stability, which has strengthened their hand going into the conflict. So I do want to follow up on something else you said. The energy exports have helped their currency regain and also obviously, to some extent, their economy stabilize. The United States, the UK, I could list off a bunch of other countries, have explicitly banned uh, Russian exports of energy. Has that materially impacted Russia at all? Or was this more of a political tool used by Western leaders to message and move the narrative forward in a favorable way uh, at the start of the war? Let's break it down a bit. Russian federal revenues, the central government, about half of those revenues are from oil and gas. It's through various royalties and fees and, and export taxes, et cetera. Most of that is oil. Maybe 20% of it is, is natural gas. So that's the rough breakdown. Oil is a more fungible commodity than natural gas because natural gas either requires an LNG terminal for import and export and a pipeline. Oil 
is, you know, there are different grades of oil. It's not exactly a pure commodity, but it's it can be rerouted and, and moved elsewhere. You're right that the United States pretty early on said we are not going to import any Russian crude oil. But actually, the U.S. is a net energy exporter. And even before the war, we barely imported any Russian crude. So the issue is that Europe still imports it. But also Asia took up some of the slack. That's primarily India and and uh, China being the main buyers of, of the seaborne based Russian crude. I mean, I think that the U.S. action was mostly symbolic. The problem is for Europe that is, you know, they're heavily reliant on Russia for energy, especially for, especially for natural gas via pipelines. And for countries like Germany, they have no alternative, at least not in, for the next year or two until they build up LNG terminals for liquefied natural gas, which you can move via ships. And they have not yet imposed a ban on all seaborne Russian crude. They will at the end of this year, as part of the six sanctions package the EU announced very early in June. There's some doubt as to how they're actually going to implement that because there were there was also a provision where they would ban maritime insurance that would you need to insure ships that carry the oil. And the U.S. government has been actually kind of pushing back on that because they're worried about it disrupting the market too much. So we could talk about that, uh, but you know the U.S. alternative. But yeah, I think the the U.S. action actually was mostly symbolic, and I think the overriding point is. It's very hard for a country, let's say the, the country that's attacking or using sanctions against a target country, it's hard for that country to, to take a step that is also very painful to its own economy. So it's very easy to say, we're not going to buy Russian oil when you weren't buying any, or Canada also said it, but Canada is a, is a major exporter, so it doesn't matter. But if you're Europe, it's a lot harder to do that. So let's dig into a little bit more of that last statement you made there. We're approaching an election, whether we want to talk about it or not. It's something that we need to be aware of, especially with foreign policy. Energy prices at the pump while they've been going down have been a pinata for Republicans. And Joe Biden and his administration is acutely aware of that. On that note, you said it's hard for nations to do stuff that they will feel the pain when they're doing it. And you also said previously that a lot of this energy, this oil is being rerouted to Asia, India and China. So from your understanding of the situation, has the U.S. seriously approached India and China through their diplomatic pathways to try and get them to stop purchasing Russian oil? Or do we not want them to cut that off because of fear that the global price shocks would be way too much for our people to kind of stomach and weather and stay involved with this conflict? So I think it's more the latter. You know, the, the global oil market is quite tight, meaning that normally there's something called spare capacity. So other multiple countries, Saudi Arabia, but others can produce more if necessary. Currently, there's something like 2 million barrels per day in spare capacity relative to a total market of about 100 million barrels per day. So that's, that's not a lot of wiggle room. Russia exports, I think, like 3 or 4 million barrels per day in terms of seaborne uh, exports of oil. So if you told India and China, stop buying that, and you don't want anyone to buy that, you end up using up all of your spare capacity because the the demand for oil is what we call inelastic in the short term, meaning that it's hard to substitute for. If you need to drive, for example, you can't find an alternative to gasoline, at least not in the short term. That would mean that oil prices would skyrocket. And that's something that, that this administration is clearly very sensitive to. American voters are very clear they consider inflation to be their number one priority. The White House has been repeatedly announcing or tweeting about the progress of the decline of gasoline prices in the US. And they have gone down quite a bit over the past few weeks. And the price of, of oil, which has shot up above $120 a barrel, is now about 100 which is high, but not astronomically high. So I think, yeah, there, the politics of it are that it's hard for us to do anything that would risk 
further disruptions to the global oil market and then push gasoline prices back up to, say, $5 a, a gallon or even higher in, in an extreme scenario. It's also worth parsing the natural gas situation because the U.S. is an exporter of natural gas. Our natural gas prices actually have gone up because there's more export demand. But that's not something that the Americans are particularly sensitive to. The price of natural gas in Europe is astronomical. It is it is so much higher than it was before the war that electricity prices are rising. And it's a major shock. And they're worried about actually having energy shortages in the winter. So it, they're in a much, much worse situation. While we're talking about global markets, let's focus just on petroleum for a second. I want our listeners to have an idea for how big of a factor the Russia-Ukraine war, specifically Russia's aggression and invasion of Ukraine, is having on the petroleum market. We know that it's a factor, certainly, but there's lots of other factors at play. There was the 2020 OPEC plus deal, and it's taken OPEC members a little bit of time to ramp up capacity. They're saying now that they're pretty close to capacity. We know how supply chains were affected by COVID. We know how there has been this strange whiplash in demand because of COVID. We know that there are producers in the United States that are reluctant to uh, look for new prospects. The U.S. have really pointed to the war as an explanation for why petroleum prices are high. President Biden called it a Putin tax. Gerard, in your estimation, how big of a factor is it in comparison, in context with all of these other factors? It was probably a fairly significant factor this year in the price of gasoline jumping. There are other things like in the U.S., there's actually a, a disconnect between the normal relationship between oil prices and refinery. So gasoline, essentially our refining capacity is slightly lower than it was a few years ago, which ended up pushing up prices relative to what they would have been before. But it is definitely the case that the war has pushed up oil prices, which then have pushed up petrol prices or gasoline prices in the United States. One could speculate, I think, with reasonable confidence that Putin timed his invasion to be at a time when he thought the world would be vulnerable to an energy shock. So I mentioned there being about, say, 2 million barrels per day of spare capacity. The way that the market handles that, if there is any shock, the lower the extra the, the spare capacity, the more sensitive markets are, because they know that the supply side cannot actually respond. So if Putin had done this and said when there were, say, five or six million barrels per day, I think the price response would have been much smaller. But because of, of how tight those markets were, you clearly saw it, drop, it, it shooting up. You also see the price of oil that the Russians are selling, which the benchmark is Ural crude, as opposed to the European one, which is Brent. Uh, that's selling about at a $35 per barrel discount relative to Brent. So those Chinese and Indian buyers are actually getting Russian crude at a discount because it's frankly a pain to do this transaction because of sanctions and other things, even though they're actually technically allowed. But it's just a very tight market now. So I think President Biden's statement is actually fairly accurate. So moving forward and combining these last two questions and and parts of your last two answers here, the war, I think it happened roughly end of January, and we've been working on increasing you know oil production probably since before then, before the war, but definitely in overdrive the last seven, eight months. We do have winter approaching for Europe mainly in the next you know two, three months. It's probably going to get pretty cold over in places in Europe. What will that feel like? Because uh, like you mentioned, Americans aren't primarily using natural gas to fuel our houses. And we primarily feel this stuff, the price at the pump, 
is what voters react to. In Europe, it's a lot different, like you alluded to. So will this be much worse and the pain be much worse for Europeans as we get into the winter? Or have we had enough time to create extra production to diplomatically loosen up some supply lines and try and mitigate the impact that the winter, along with the ongoing war, along with the six sanctions package, and any response from Russia might have on Europe? So the big vulnerability for Europe is natural gas. The problem is their pipelines are essentially all from Russia. They do have some liquefied natural gas terminals, but those are not nearly enough to supply them which means they can build more and they will, but it takes a year or two. So this winter is going to be particularly difficult. And it's especially difficult because Gazprom, which is the the Russian company that sells natural gas, has substantially reduced the amount of gas it's allowing to flow through its pipelines into Europe. But I think it's it's at like 20% of normal levels now. So what what normally would happen is in the summer, when you don't use as much gas because it's warmer, Europe would be building up its inventories, right? They would, they would essentially be saving the gas. And then in the winter, they could draw that down to smooth it. But they actually probably can't do that now because the Russians have reduced the flow so much. The EU is talking about putting measures in place to reduce consumption by at least 15%. There's some back and forth where basically Germany is the one that really wants this. And some of the Mediterranean countries, including Spain, we're saying, well, look, we, we actually don't have the same energy vulnerabilities. We, all, we have our own LNG terminals and our own pipelines that are connected to them. Uh, so there's some give and take going on there. Um, but, but I think the worst case would be substantial rationing, not just inflation of prices in Europe, which might mean prioritizing households and probably shutting down factories or some factories at least to preserve natural gas, which would be obviously quite bad for the German and Central European economy. So take the economic effects. I don't know if we can even take them aside. So maybe hold on that statement. But we do know that Europeans are just better at approaching climate change about, I don't want to say rationing, but not using nearly as much energy as we do. And and there are a lot of reasons for that, right? The way that our urban cities are set up and a whole host of of, of different things. But here in the US, I I hear energy rationing. I think of the Carter years and I think of all these horrors that my grandparents tell me and, and, uh, you know, the old hats in in Washington, D.C. from the political ramifications. Relative to the United States, are Europeans more willing to act collectively and ration for, for the greater good? And if so, why is there a contrast between their outlook on things and the American spirit? It's a big cultural question. I'm not sure I have a, a high confidence answer, but I can say that I think what a population is prepared to endure depends on what they think they're getting out of it. So you mentioned that, you know, in the 1970s, President Carter wearing his cardigan or whatever, telling people to turn down their thermostats, that was not very effective. Uh, Reagan had the opposite attitude, and I think that was at least politically more effective. But then in World War II, we had rationing, right, where you, you couldn't get all the meat you wanted. You could only get gasoline on certain days with certain license plates. Americans seem to tolerate that, right, because they thought the war was worth fighting. So with Europe, I think the question is, do they think it's worth enduring this to get through the winter and be able to sustain the assistance to Ukraine? And also, frankly, if you want to be a real realist about it, even if they said, look, we give up, Putin might just say, yeah, I don't care. Like he, 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 can, he holds the cards here in the short term. My hope is that Europeans in general can get through this harsh winter and over time, over the next year or two, can build in more redundancies and find other energy sources like LNG 
And then so we can actually get through this and ultimately stick with our strategic goal, which is to protect Ukraine, allow it to repel the Russian invaders. And, you know, I think in Europe, there's clearly a, a compelling interest about not allowing territorial expansion through through violent means. So I think that, you know, there is a chance that the Europeans will hopefully be able to hold it together. So, Gerard, we're looking forward on the effect. Let's look forward a little bit on the policy side as well. Uh, you mentioned how at the beginning of this phase of the war, the U.S. took much harsher measures than was expected at the time. Right now, the U.S. are still rolling out some new sanctions measures. Just today, it was announced that the U.S. are going to sanction Putin's reported mistress, a former gymnast who spends a lot of her time in Switzerland. You also mentioned that Germany and the EU are planning some new sanctions on fuel exports towards the end of the year. But because of how harsh we went at the beginning, how close to maxed out are we? Do we still have a lot of levers left or have we used most of our gunpowder so far? I think in a theoretical sense, we have lots of ammo left. But I think you have to keep in mind that while sanctions are an economic weapon, they ultimately have political limits. And I think we're at or near the political limits for the pain tolerance in the United States, in particular, anything that would risk pushing energy prices higher. You could debate the sequencing. I think that we did the right thing instead of going hard early with, with multiple things. So financial sanctions plus export controls and, and, and other measures. But the problem basically is that Putin has a, a, an economy that is a major energy exporter at a time when the world needs energy. So there's not a lot we can do in the short term. I don't think that this administration has much interest in doing anything that would be risky at this point. They are considering this idea of a, a cartel or, or a, a price cap on Russian oil, which I think is itself riskier. I think riskier than the administration is is admitting. But that's because they're also worried about the maritime insurance ban that the EU is supposedly going to push through and they're trying to find an alternative. Because ultimately what they don't want to happen is you know, three or four million barrels per day going offline because Russia can't ship its oil and oil going above 150 or $200 a barrel. So I wanted to switch over to a different aspect of sanctions and bluntly ask you, have they worked? You described the reason is to support Ukraine a little bit more specifically. Have we seen any indications that the sanctions that the U.S. and the West have placed on Russia have, A, changed their attitudes or actions? and B, limited the capacity for them to continue carrying out this war or just deal with the pains that war brings to a domestic economy and also political land? I think we need to be realistic about what sanctions can accomplish. I don't think they have drastically changed Russia's attitude, but they are hurting the Russian economy. You could break it down to basically two phases. The first was the initial financial shock when the ruble tanked, which we talked about, but then it recovered. But the other thing that happened was that Russian imports are down substantially. Part of that is export controls. Part of it is fear of secondary sanctions because of the financial sanctions. And so if you look at, well, Russia actually no longer publishes trade data, but you can look at uh, other countries' exports to Russia to get a mirror, which I've done. And basically, it looks like from, from March through May, Russian imports were about half of what they were in the previous three months, so to say the three months before the war. So I think it is hurting Russia. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence of, say, Russian car makers not being able to get things like airbags or touchscreen TVs. So they might be able to eventually resume production, but they're basically 1980s level technology. 
Russia has no real prospect of, of having technological self-sufficiency. Their manufacturing sector is decently sized, but it, it's heavily reliant on foreign inputs. So I, I describe it as more of a slow bleeding of the Russian economy from the export controls, from the fact that a lot of foreign companies are either cease operations or pulling out entirely. And a lot of the more educated Russians are trying to leave. So is it working? How do you define your goals? I think, I think it ultimately will degrade Russia's ability to sustain its war. There's already anecdotal evidence that they're running out of, you know, smart munitions, guided munitions, that they're having to go through, you know, Cold War era tanks, basically go through their inventories to keep fighting. Meanwhile, we are providing the Ukrainians with more advanced weapons. So I think the balance of power in terms of weapons is actually shifting towards the Ukrainians. And so, but I mean, ultimately, and as I keep saying is, this is a military problem that will require a military solution. Yes, ultimately, there'll be a diplomatic solution, but you have to use arms to get there to be blunt. And I think that the sanctions should be thought of as being supplemental to the other efforts to to backstop and support the Ukrainian military. You mentioned the flight of the educated Russians. I think I saw months back an article highlighting IT workers, scientists. How real is it, first off? And without getting too specific into that, how detrimental could that be to a large economy like Russia, you know, five, 10 years down the road? There are a lot of educated Russians, especially in the IT sector and others in engineering. It will certainly hurt their economy, but there's a question of do these people even have jobs for them anyway because of the sanctions. It's hard to know how much brain drain there is. The Russians are no longer reporting their emigration statistics. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that Russians are going to uh, basically former Soviet republics like Georgia, where they can get there without visas. It would be great if the West, the United States included, made it a lot easier for educated Russians to come to the United States or wherever to basically prevent Putin from having their brain power. But I think there's no doubt that losing your most talented workers is in the long run going to hurt. So, Gerard, every situation like this one, Amidst all the tragedy, it's also a case study, right? So we're evaluating how successful and effective this sanctions regime has been at getting Russia either to adapt its behavior or to limit its capacity to pursue destructive ends. So I'm sure that many policy analysts in the United States and elsewhere are looking at this case as an instructive one for how we might perhaps apply sanctions to another great rival, China, in the future, if our relationship with them escalated in a dangerous direction amid any number of possibilities. What's your thinking about that right now? Do you think that this sanctions regime is a model for how we would approach China in the future? What have we learned here that we might do differently? The Chinese government is certainly worried about it being a model, but I think the part of the model that's the hardest to replicate or would be the hardest to replicate in the case of China is the degree, the size of the coalition, basically. So we have the G7 plus, so including the EU and Japan, Korea and others, Swiss, Swedes, everyone's involved in this. It will be difficult for me to imagine a coalition that is as united and as forceful against China, unless it is something really egregious, like just unilaterally trying to invade Taiwan, which I hope doesn't happen, but maybe at some point might. I think the other, there are several other lessons. One is that you really hope that economic sanctions or the threat of them can deter. In this case, they obviously failed. Putin attacked. But I think he, they failed for an interesting reason, which is that the United States and others underwarned. We basically threatened less sanctions than we ended up doing. Why we did that, I think, is that uh, we and our allies were basically not prepared to sort of internalize what was going to happen. And you know, there's there's evidence that 
really only the United States and the UK government were were believing the the oddly transparent, uh, abnormally transparent intelligence warnings that the United States was giving. That the Europeans were basically refusing to believe this because it seemed so irrational. I hope they would learn from that, uh, including in a China context. Just because something is irrational doesn't mean a country won't do it because they have nationalist ambitions. So, if in, insofar as you're trying to, to deter, you should definitely not underwarn. That's one lesson. Another thing, though, is that once the war starts, I think it's unreasonable to expect a country to give up its war effort just, you know, politically because of its actions. I'm, I'm actually not aware of a historical example where a country that was already committed to war gave up mostly because of sanctions. Economics contributes to war efforts, but it's not the sole determinant. Um, and finally, just keep in mind that sanctions are ultimately political, as I said before. And so whenever you're designing them, you have to consider your own populations, your own polities willing us to endure whatever pain happens from blowback and also from potential retaliation, which in the case of China could be much worse than what Russia's doing to us. One concern that has been raised by many analysts in this era where the U.S. seems almost addicted to sanctions, it said that sanctions is our tool for all emergencies around the world, is that as we start sanctioning larger countries and more often, we're encouraging them to develop parallel instruments, parallel mechanisms, so that the effect of future sanctions won't be as severe. We currently have the U.S. as the reserve dollar. We have a big impact on the SWIFT system and so on. Uh, we have a big advantage because of the way that the global economy is, is structured. But we might, by using sanctions so often, encourage countries to take preventative measures and set up these parallel mechanisms so that they won't be uh, as impacted by sanctions in the future. So, of course, people are looking at China in this light. And there's been a lot of anticipation that perhaps China would not cooperate in whatever way necessary with the U.S. efforts against Russia, that China might help Russia evade some of the banking sanctions and so on. There's been a lot of talk about the word compliance, whether China is complying with U.S. sanctions. And Gerard, I want you to explain to us how we should understand this word. What does it really mean for China to be complying with U.S. sanctions against Russia? And depending on how you define that and how you think about that, are they indeed complying? So compliance is different from imposing your own sanctions. Compliance means you're basically not running afoul of the sanctions the U.S. and others have, have imposed because you're afraid of secondary sanctions that would punish you. Uh, as far as I know, there's no evidence of major sanctions violations by the Chinese or really most other countries, as far as I can tell. I think Chinese firms, including state-owned banks and firms, are worried about the severity of the sanctions we would impose on them if they violated them. And the re our real red line is, is, you know, you cannot provide military assistance. Keep in mind, the sanctions on Russia do not prohibit them from buying Russian energy. So they're, they're doing that. And they are still exporting just in lower quantities. Part of that might be because they're having a hard time getting payment from the Russians because of the various financial sanctions. And also they can't export everything because of, because of export controls. So in that sense, the sanctions are being effective. Getting to your earlier comment about the potential overuse of sanctions and incentivizing countries to move away from the dollar, I would be more worried about this if, if the U.S. were going at this alone, but we're not. It's with all the basically every other reserve currency except for the Chinese renminbi, right, is part of the sanctions coalition. It's very difficult to get away from that kind of block. I mean, the Chinese, there's, there was a re news report, I think, from April of them summoning a bunch of foreign banks and saying, what can you do to shield your assets from sanction? And they said, well, we can't do anything, actually, because it's, it's too hard. China is, is really the only country that would have the geopolitical interest and economic heft to provide anything like an alternative. But it's still not quite there. I mean, there's 
there's no real prospect of, of any currency replacing the dollar in at least the short to medium term. But you can imagine a network that's robust enough to allow for workarounds. The Chinese are sort of working on that with, with their own payment system that's kind of their version of SWIFT. It's actually different because SWIFT is a messaging service. Theirs called SIPS actually does payments. But the problem with their with, with SIPS is that it's actually still on the SWIFT network. Something like 80% of their transactions are still via SWIFT. So that's still vulnerable. And another thing to keep in mind is that it just, you know, even if you're, you're say, let's say, a bank in, in India and you want to transact an RMB as a means of avoiding sanctions, you might be able to do that. But if that same bank has any exposure to the US dollar network, you're still vulnerable to secondary sanctions if you get hit. And that's a very painful retaliation, right? So I think it's just very hard to insulate your financial system from the dollar. So I'm just not that worried about that in the short term. How important do you think it is that we make sure that China doesn't start helping Russia evade the sanctions that we've put in place? You said that as far as we know, they seem to be in compliance the way that we understand that term with the current set of sanctions. Uh, There was an article by Thomas Friedman where he emphasized how important it was to keep China behaving in the way that they are right now in regard to these Russia sanctions, and that this was a reason why Speaker Pelosi should not have visited Taiwan. I mean, what do you think about this? Do you think that we have to be a bit careful about the way that we talk about China and, and interact with China in this period when we're focused on the war in Ukraine? Well, the specific question is, you know, if, if China were to provide munitions, drones, whatever, to Russia, in violation of our sanctions, uh, and we've warned them about that, we should definitely sanction some entities to punish them. As for Speaker Pelosi's trip, I think it's risky. We're seeing that right now. There's a cost to be paid. You could debate whether it's worth it. I think the timing is, is just, let's say, inopportune, given that this is a party congress year for the Chinese Communist Party. It's also August, which is when they have their leadership retreat. It's also PLA Day, uh, which is their army day, basically. It's a sensitive topic. It's just a question of whether you think it's it's worth the fact that now China has announced they're going to be performing military exercises encircling Taiwan including getting into Taiwan's territorial waters. My general attitude was I would have preferred that Pelosi not go. I don't think we're getting much out of it. I don't think Taiwan security benefits from this. But once the it became public and the Chinese started threatening us, I understand those who were saying, well, look, now we have to go because we're not going to be bullied. You know, I'm kind of of two minds with this, but I, I definitely understand the mentality of you got to push back on a bully. And just like Putin's a, pull, a bully, right? So, so one example is that he initially said that if Finland or Sweden joined NATO, that he would do something drastic. And after they announced it, he backed down. Because sometimes bullies, you push them, they just back off. And ultimately, if you think something's worth it, you push. Just be prepared for what the risk is. And with China, the risk is just much, much larger. And so, I have to agree with that second part right there, considering the domestic ramifications once this was leaked heading into the November elections, this would have just been easy for the Republicans to use to blame Biden and Pelosi and lump all the Democrats in as being soft on China. So in addition to everything else, there would have been a political price to pay regardless if the initial visit should have been set up. But like you said, once it was leaked, you can't be bullied by the People's Republic of China, in my humble opinion. Kind of looking at your response there, Gerard, I mean, you're emphasizing the seriousness of the threats, and that there's a bit of theater, a bit of bravado in here. But at the core, China and others are going to just be wondering about whether the price is worth it. So, I mean, with that in mind, do you think that these threats of secondary sanctions are going to be enough 
to deter China from providing that kind of weaponry to support Russia. I mean, how confident are you that their current behavior will continue? Or do you think this is something that we really need to be concerned about? I think it's reasonable to think that provocative U.S. actions in their mind in Taiwan might change their risk tolerance. But I think the severity of the sanctions remains. And I think as long as we can credibly enforce that, which we can, I don't think they want to see a bank, a major bank sanctioned, which we might need to be prepared to do. Now, it's that's going to cut both ways, right? Because we're talking globally, systemically important banks in some cases. Um, but I do think we need to enforce that um, because the, you know, the, the war, helping Ukraine win the war, whatever that means, I think should be a national priority. And ultimately, it's about cost-benefit analysis, right? And I think that it's worth taking some risks. Part of my my concern about Pelosi's trip is that I don't see a lot of the benefit and I see a lot of the cost there. But now that we're already there, and Justin, I take your point, there's a, there's certainly a domestic political aspect, which might even been actually the most compelling argument, to be honest, once it was public. Will China violate sanctions because of this? I don't know. My gut is probably not in a way that would be big enough that you would hit them. But if they do, I think we have to have to enforce the sanctions. And I wanted to pivot a little bit to India and just broadly speaking, get your take on their response to the invasion of Ukraine, their approach to Russia, their approach to the West, the United States. Is this what you expected? Are you disappointed with their approach? Help us understand the paradigm we should view India's foreign policy in this regard. Well, India is in a difficult position because on the one hand, they know that that China is a strategic competitor or threat. They're part of the quad, which we have with the United States, Japan, Australia, and, and India. It's not exactly a defense alliance, but it's sort of a rough approximation of one that we're trying to build towards. But on the other hand, India has traditional relationships with Russia. They were technically you know, part of the non-aligned movement during the Cold War, but it's it's... <laughs> Worth noting that pretty much the bulk of their military relies on Russian or ex-Soviet weapons, right? Whereas Pakistan was the client state for the United States during the Cold War. So if they if they were to join us fully in the sanctions, they would risk their ability to even resupply their military with spare parts. I can understand why any country doesn't want to be in that position. They're in a sort of transitional phase of going from sort of non-aligned global south trying to not be told by the west what to do but also realizing that maybe we have some mutually aligned interests with regard to china my impression is that the u.s administration has been sort of gently criticizing them but not not being too harsh because we understand what a difficult position they're in and if we're playing the long game the fact that india is not you know not fully on board with the sanctions is probably not going to matter all that much with regard to the ukraine war And ultimately, it's more important for the U.S. to keep India in our camp, so to speak, with regard to China. It's certainly been the headline in many of these sanctioned packages that we've unrolled that were targeting key persons. You know, the story of Roman Abramovich and the seizure of Chelsea Football Club was a massive story in the media. Uh, The DOJ and the U.S. have emphasized their new efforts on this anti-kleptocracy task force as a new innovation of our sanctions approach. But do you really think that this is all a little bit overstated and it's not as important to the big picture? I mean, the idea has been that these specific oligarchs are key to the functioning of the regime, and maybe that's coming into question now. What do you think about that? I don't have a, you know, a great window into the Kremlin, but, but I think early on in the sanctions, especially like the February, March period, there was a lot of speculation that the oligarchs, if you stole their yachts or whatever, would, be, would compel Putin and the war. Obviously, that did not happen. 
I suspect that you know, it makes more sense to think of, of Russia as sort of national security state as opposed to a oligarchy, or even if there are oligarchs and Putin ultimately has the, the security apparatus so he, he can control them. I think that theory of victory, so to speak, doesn't make a lot of sense. I think the emphasis on oligarchs is also because it, it frankly feels good morally because you think, well, these guys are kleptocrats. Most of this is ill-gotten gains. And you're being you know, egregious with your flash of wealth and having these giant yachts. So let's seize them. So I kind of get the impulse. I just don't think it matters all that much for ultimately achieving our goals. Yeah, it's such a emphasis in the media, obviously, because that's what people can understand. They, right. they see the, the yacht being snagged and then they feel good about themselves. They feel good about the war effort. They feel good about the Biden administration. So that makes sense. Now, Gerard, I wanted to maybe pull back out and ask a theoretical question and maybe a hypothetical question. So at one point, we were discussing Europe being surprised by Putin's actions and seeing them as irrational. So I guess this goes to some type of economic theory about the nature of sanctions and how long lasting they will be. But isn't there a realistic case that Putin's actions could ultimately be very rational and very beneficial to the Russian state if theoretically he was able to chop off a large portion of Ukraine and then after doing so declare some type of peace. And then after declaring that peace, the public gets inured to the new map in Europe and sanctions slowly begin to drift away. So that question is, do you think the Western resolve is strong enough that five, 10 years after whenever this conflict ends, even if Russia does grab some some portion of Ukraine, that these sanctions will go away and will come out with Russia having more territory that produces more grain and, and more essential products? I think when you're talking about rationality, most economists will just say, treat people's preferences as exogenous, right? So I can't get into Putin's head. I think when, when we said, you know, that the Germans thought it was irrational is that they have a sort of very commercial mindset. They, they thought that economic interdependence would prevent Putin from making a territorial grab. And it was obviously just giving Russia leverage instead. Does the idea of conquering Ukraine make sense economically for Russia? I don't think that's, that's you know, going to be their path to prosperity. Think integration into the global economy is the best way forward. You could postulate a scenario where Russia wins the war handily and eventually the sanctions fall apart. And then over time, Russia's maybe better off. I think it's more plausible that even if Russia you know, wins the war, that the sanctions will remain, uh, at least export controls will remain indefinitely. There is precedent for this. I mean, we've maintained sanctions on North Korea, Venezuela, Cuba, South Africa under apartheid, you know, regimes that you find highly objectionable, you, you can harness that ability. And frankly, because even before the war, Russia was a large economy, but not a huge economy. It was the 11th largest, really just because of its, its, its oil and gas. I think it's a market that most Western business can ultimately be prepared to let go. And in the long run, if the energy transition is successful, which I hope it will be, uh, Russia really has no prospects. So, and they're not diversifying. They don't have a path forward like some of the, the Gulf states are working on, right? I really don't see this working out well for Russia economically. Whether you think, you know, nationalist control of Ukraine is worth it, I, that's sort of not where my headspace is. But I just think of that, that attitude as being wrong and one we have to, we have to resist. Yeah, it seems to me like it's a bizarre misallocation of priorities. But I think, Gerard, what you've raised there is that in some ways, it's really a question of patience, isn't it? It's a test about whether... United States and the Western coalition that we put together or the Russian leadership have more patience and are able to look 
with a shorter term or a longer term on this situation. Certainly, there's been a lot of comparisons between broadly the way that democratic societies and autocratic societies think about time. The Chinese formulation is certainly that an autocratic society, you have the benefit of long-term thinking and patience. But I mean, what it really gets comes down to, this question of short, long-term, patient or impatient, is about the security of leadership survival, isn't it? I mean, there's been many autocratic regimes that did not feel as though they had the safety and security that they needed to persist at the top to look long-term. And they've, in fact, taken short-term measures in many cases. So, I mean, how, how secure do you think the Kremlin's leadership is right now? I know it's a different, difficult question to answer, but I mean, do you think that uh, they can win a waiting game? The way I think about it is more about endurance. And given that the war has started and it's not feasible that the Russians are just going to quit, Putin ultimately will have to play some type of waiting game. I think in terms of material capabilities, there's different views in this, but I've seen people compellingly argue that the Russian military is nearing exhaustion. They're calling up what little reserves they have left. They're trying to avoid mass conscription, which anyway wouldn't be that effective. Ukrainians clearly have a will to fight. I think there is a question of our ability to keep supplying them with munitions at the rate that they're using them. Our, our defense industrial base is not designed for this type of high intensity war, sort of like World War II levels of, ex, of our, our artillery exchanges. And that's something I would hope you would rethink and maybe build more capacity there. Politically, I can see the U.S. sticking with it. I hope the Europeans will. I think ultimately, it's if we can get through this winter, economically speaking, it's not the, the worst of the pain for the West will be will be over. We should not tell the Ukrainians when they give up. So if they keep resisting, let's just keep going. Uh, whether whether you think authoritarian regimes are more strategic or not, I'm actually doubtful. I mean, I know a fair amount about Chinese economic planning and five year plans, and I just don't I don't think they're as far sighted as a lot of people think. Uh, a lot of their plans are just are just rehashing what they're already observing as trends, and they're often not that predictive. Um, but certainly, you're right that that Putin would have an incentive to hold on. He's not going to back down, I don't think, or he, he needs some sort of face saving way of, of ending this. Which ultimately, I hope, is how it ends. You know, if if the Ukrainians take enough territory back, they reach some settlement. Maybe Russia gets a little sliver uh, in the east or something, or maybe Crimea. But that's something that will be rehashed once the Ukrainians have a have a better battlefield position. I hope. Yeah, I think that perhaps this idea of China as the ultimate long-term thinking society is perhaps a bit of mythologizing. I mean, there's the anecdote of the Chinese leader. I think it might have been Deng who said that it was too early to tell uh, the impact of the French Revolution as a way of illustrating this uh, Chinese gift for long-term thinking. But I, I think you're right, Gerard, that perhaps it's a bit of self-mythologizing. And in reality, the thinking is much more short-term. I mean, we're seeing right now with zero COVID and so on. Yeah, I mean, you're referring to Joe and Lai, who was basically Mao Zedong's uh, number two. And he, he supposedly said that, I think, the either Kissinger or Nixon in the early 70s. And it's a misquote because he was responding to the French Revolution in 1968, saying, <laughs> perfect. If you would have asked Joe and Lai, what do you think the Chinese economy would look like in 100 years? He certainly wouldn't have predicted or, or even 50 years wouldn't have gotten that right. Because, you know, Maoists were terrible at planning because that's why they were starving. So uh, I just don't think it's true that they're, they're you know, inherently better at that. So it's us who made this myth and not even them. It's a misquote, yes. That is our show today with Gerard DePippo from CSIS discussing sanctions, the global economy, the war in Ukraine, and how they're all intertwined. Please join us for our next show on Tuesday or Thursday of the coming week. Uh, we all hope you have a good evening, afternoon, or morning, wherever you may be.